Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Well, church, all ministry year, we have been hitting on a theme. We opened up our ministry year with this theme. We brought it to you in a variety of ways about that God has put a call on our lives, all of us, to be ambassadors for Christ who bring the message of reconciliation to those in our world who need it. And we, we've played off this theme in a number of ways. We kicked off our year by uh, doing a kind of a play on our area code. And we said, three, two, one, launch. What we were gonna do this year is covenant together to pray for three people in our lives who are in the community who need Christ, uh, who need a relationship with God. We would pray for them and we would ask God to give us the opportunity to befriend at least two of them and hopefully uh, by his grace invite one of them or more, but at least one, to take a next step in their journey of faith in a relationship with Jesus. We're emphasizing this because of our mission. Our mission is to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. And we recognize that the deepest need, the first and the greatest need of everyone in our world is to know Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God through him. But this brings about an important question. How do we bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in the 21st century? How do we bring it to a culture and a society that is becoming more pluralistic and more antagonistic towards the gospel that we say is the answer for what they're looking for? Well, it may seem counterintuitive to do so, but the answer to this is in the past. We look back in time, 2,000 years ago, where the Apostle Paul is writing. And in chapter 12, he is making a transition in this, maybe the greatest of the New Testament books, the book of Romans. For the previous 11 chapters, he has been presenting some of the deepest truths of the gospel and God's word to this church. And for 11 chapters, he's been talking about justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification and all these other Asians that are in that part of the book. Right? But in chapter 12, he pivots, he becomes more practical, and he applies these great doctrinal teachings and these theological truths, and he's writing these to a group of Christians, and he's applying it to these Christians who are living in an, an extremely pluralistic society, a society that expressed their antagonism and hostility towards the gospel with violence and persecution. So what he tells them and that society, it's, it's very informative for us. And the, and the verses right before the text this morning, he, he, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he makes the point that spiritual gifts belong to all of us, each of us. At the point of salvation, God imbues with us 
uh, an aspect of his grace, one or more spiritual gifts are given to us. And, and no one of us is exactly like the other. This is a unique work of God in our lives, but it's all for the purpose of building up his church. But while spiritual gifts are, can be very unique and very select, depending on how God gives them and where he gives them and how they're expressed, in verse 9, when he begins to talk in these verses, what he's referring to are things that should characterize all Christians. Every one of us should be characterized by what he talks about in verses 9 and the following verses. And he gives these, these, this, this characterization in a, in a different way. It's, it's a staccato, almost a staccato, you know, where he says point after point after point, and it's just a list of imperatives of, of who we're to be or do in light of the fact that we've been justified in Jesus Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God, we're being transformed by the Spirit of God, as he puts out in the very beginning of this book, now, how is this to affect us in our very lives? And so he gives us a list of imperatives that are to characterize all the followers of Jesus. And depending on how you count it, there's at least nine, maybe 10, so we're gonna be here till about three o'clock, okay? No, we're not. I'm not gonna go through all of these imperatives this morning. Instead, I really want us to kind of hone in on these, this portion of the text that touches on an important theme. It's an aspect of the gospel that we need to have manifested in our lives if we're going to be effective ambassadors for Jesus Christ. If we want to be those kind of ambassadors, we have to be able to show gospel hospitality in a 21st century context. And, and, and I think many of us, we struggle with this aspect of the gospel. And yet it is a, a theme that you see repeatedly brought up throughout the New Testament books, either directly in an explicit manner or through implicit examples of people who are living out this need. So this morning, I want us to just jump right into really verses 9 to 13, where we're going to spend our attention. And we're going to look at this idea of gospel hospitality with the hope of better understanding what it does mean, what it doesn't mean, and what it should practically look like for us to put this into practice so that we can see God use us to reach those who don't know Jesus Christ. Let's start by recognizing that there's two important conditions that need to be in place for gospel hospitality to thrive in our lives. The very first one is love. Gospel hospitality requires a type of love, a kind of love that only the gospel can produce. Gospel hospitality requires a certain type of love. And it's not a love that we can generate, it's a love that God must generate in our lives through his grace and through the Holy Spirit. We just saw a great video on love. It was short, but boy, was there a lot of truth compacted into that little video. And next week, uh, Scott Padilla, our director of student ministries, he is going to bring the message, and he's gonna, his text is 1 Corinthians 13. If you know anything about scripture, 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the love chapter. And in that chapter, Paul writes about love and he does it in a way where his, his prose is elevated almost to the form of poetry. It's just beautiful, beautiful language in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm looking forward to what uh, Scott has to say about that. But in this chapter, he is not poetic 
at all, <laughs> okay? He wrote 1 Corinthians uh, 13 a year or two before he wrote the, this chapter in the book of Romans. And this text, it's not flowery, it's not poetical. It is not beautiful from a narrative standpoint. It is down and dirty, right? It's this compact, if you will, it's a recipe of what biblical love looks like. He starts in verse nine by saying, let love be genuine. And the underlying word for genuine is the, the Greek word from which we get the idea of hypocrisy. And that Greek word meant to wear a mask. And, you know, nowadays when we see movies, actors they, with special effects, they have all this makeup and all this ability to make someone look, you know, extremely old or even younger and not even look like a human being anymore. But in the ancient days, when they did a play or they did a comedy or a drama of some kind, when they wanted to play a different character or communicate that this dude is not a dude, he's the wife of the dude, they'd put up a mask. All right, they would wear a mask in front of their face and that told you who their character was. That's the underlying word here. He's saying, let your love be sincere, not where you're wearing a mask that you're pretending to love or you're putting on an act. Let your love be without ulterior motives, without some kind of a, a manipulative agenda. Right? The love that he's speaking of here, this is more than simple human affection or compassion. It is certainly much more than the sappy, you know, sentimentality that we see in most romantic comedies or the Hallmark Channel nowadays, right? That is not the Bible's understanding of love. This is a love that can only come about as the result of a divine work of God in our lives. This is that word for love that is only used in the Bible. In the, in the ancient world, though it was in the Greek language, they didn't use that word agape hardly at all. It's that sacrificial, supernatural love. It's the love behind God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the love behind Jesus climbing onto the cross and sacrificing his life for our sins. It's that kind of sacrificial, supernatural love that's being called for here. It's the kind of love that can only come about through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We cannot generate this on our own. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, when Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, when we, when we receive Christ, if, if you don't know Christ this morning, when you commit your life to Christ, and you recognize that you're a sinner and that you need salvation, you need your sins forgiven, and you trust in Jesus, the most amazing thing happens. The Bible tells us we're given a new nature and that God himself, through God the Holy Spirit, actually takes up residence in our hearts, in our lives. And he begins to control us. If you're looking for the answer for what you need in your life, the answer is right there. You need the Spirit of God in your life, directing, changing, running your life, and that only happens by submitting to Jesus Christ and receiving him as Lord and Savior. But when you do this, the most amazing thing begins to happen. He begins to change us from the inside out. There's a fruit that comes about from this conversion. And Paul says it like this. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is, and what's the very first one, church? Love. The very first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You see, we need a love that comes from outside of us that we cannot generate, and that only comes through Christ. This love is to be genuine, sincere, and interestingly enough, 
It's associated with hatred. Now, we don't normally think of God's love, especially this kind of love with hate, yet to love, love genuinely, sincerely, it includes a form of hatred. He says, let your love be genuine, abhor. This is the word for hate. So in other words, this isn't to mildly dislike something, right? This is abhor. I mean, just the, you just say that, say that with me, ready? Abhor, one more time, abhor. All right, this, this is not mild dislike. This is righteous, deep hatred. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In other words, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to bring gospel restoration, there is a role for righteous hatred in our love. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? But when you think about it, it makes sense. We as God's people are to hate domestic abuse when it occurs in our community. We are to hate crime. We are to hate what addictions do to people and to our families. We are to hate racism. We are to hate poverty. We are to hate what we see happening in our homes today and the way they are disintegrating. We are to hate how our world is turning upside down the very idea of what a home actually is. We are to hate what sin is doing in our community and to the people in our lives and out of love for them intervene. For gospel hospitality to thrive, there must be in our lives a love present that only the gospel can produce. This is an important precondition or condition for this to thrive. There's another condition. I'm not going to dwell on it long, but there has to be acknowledgement in our parts that our lives and our homes belong to God for his use. So not only must love be present that comes from the gospel itself, there has to be an acknowledgement on our part that our very lives, our homes, everything that we have belong to God and they are surrendered for his use. He says in verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. The idea here is to, to be on fire for God, for it to be bubbling up out of us like a pot overflows. Serve, or literally be enslaved to the Lord. We're to live out of love, right? But this love church is not some weak, passive, apathetic, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be kind of love. This is a love that is requires that results in serious business and hard work. I, I like. Uh, I was raised in the King James version. The King James version, verse eleven, is translated uh, to, to not be slothful in business. Right? If you're a businessman, you know, if you, especially if you have your own business, how much hard work is involved in making that business to be successful. And what he's getting at here is if we are intervening in the lives of people, if we love what is genuine and hate what is evil, and we intervene into the lives of people who have these needs, it is hard, hard work, and it is serious business. You know, a, a few weeks ago, I told you the story of of D.L. Moody, and we were talking about using our gifts to serve the church and, and how he was led to Christ by his Sunday school teacher and that whole story. D.L. Moody, if you're not familiar with who he is, he was to the, uh, the, the, eighth, uh, the 19th century, the, the second half of the 19th century, 
uh, what Billy Graham was to the second half of the 20th century. Um, so they, that would be a good analogy of, of who he was and the def- effects of his ministry. Uh, as his ministry was taking off, uh, Dr. Kent Hughes tells the story of him. Uh, he'd been preaching and working and, and doing revivals and campaigns uh, in America and overseas. And one night, he and a fellow traveler, they were sharing a hotel room together. And the traveler relates the story about their bedtime prayers and how D.L. Moody would pray before he went to bed. But on this particular night, and he was a rather large man, okay, much even larger than me, at least in the round sense. And uh, he literally just rolled into bed and he said, closed his eyes and he said, Lord, I am tired, amen. (laughs) That was his whole prayer and he went to sleep, right? Uh, Why did he do it? Because kingdom work is hard. And of course, it's supposed to be hard. We're talking about the kingdom of God at warfare with the kingdom of darkness. And what's in the balance? The souls of men and women and children in our community and around the world. Of course, it's going to be hard. It's going to be ups and downs. It's going to be times of great encouragement where we rejoice with a family like we did this morning. And then there's going to be times of extreme discouragement and you're going to want to quit. And that's why the commitment that's being called for here in verse 11, it it echoes what we talked about last week of stewardship, of recognizing that everything in my life, the entirety of my life, including my resources and my home, everything about me belongs to God. I'm his steward. I'm his servant. I'm literally his slave to be used by him for his glory and for his kingdom. Church, these two conditions have to be in place. If gospel hospitality is gonna thrive in our lives, if we are gonna be able to bring gospel restoration to people and to experience and to do this through gospel hospitality, these two things, this love that only comes about because the gospel is present and growing in our lives and this acknowledgement that our lives and our homes, they belong to God completely. When these two things are in place, we can begin to obey what he talks about in verse 13. And this is gospel hospitality. Now, now what we want to define it. We want to know what it is. We want to know what it isn't. We want to know, at least in some sense, what it should look like in our lives. So let me just give you a simple kind of definition. Gospel hospitality occurs when we open up our lives and our homes to love those who are in need. Gospel hospitality occurs when we open up our lives and our homes to love and serve those who are in need. Now, I want to give you several practical applications of what this is in verse 13 when he says, show hospitality. Let's start by what it is not. Gospel hospitality is not entertaining guests in the way we mean it in America. Because when we think of hospitality in America, a lot of it is defined and known in our lives by Martha Stewart or 
you know, or the, the barbecue guy on the PBS channel, Stephen Raiklin, or, or somebody like that. The hospitality has something to do with, you know, you know little doilies, making my plates look a certain way, uh, working myself to death to create this massive, great barbecue meal that's better than anything you can get in town. And, you know, and we have people over and they enjoy this food or they enjoy the lunch that we take them out to and we laugh and we talk about everything and, and then we go our merry way. And they leave saying, wow, did that guy ever reverse sear a steak? I'm just saying. All right? But that is not gospel hospitality. Gospel hospitality can include entertaining people, but entertaining people is not gospel hospitality. Not at all. Okay, let's just get that down. Gospel hospitality, second application, is a practical and proactive way to meet people at the point of their deepest need. It is a practical and proactive way to meet people at the point of their deepest need. He says in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That phrase, seek to show, it's important. It, it's communicating proactive, practical intervention. It comes from a word that literally means to chase down, to pursue, to, to even persecute, to run down, to aggressively go after something. In other words, it's saying, it's describing intentional, hard effort, a regular practice of life to find people in need. Seek to show means you're going out looking intentionally for those who are in need with the idea being, I'm going to get involved in their life and I'm going to be hospitable to them. Uh, Leon Morris in his work on the book of Romans writes, Paul is not advocating a pleasant social exercise among friends, but the use of one's home to help even people we do not know if that will advance God's cause. You see, we are, we are comfortable to a certain extent in interacting maybe with people and even getting involved in their lives, but there's a line that we often do not want them to cross. And what is that line? It's my personal space. It's my home. This is my refuge. This is where I get to let my hair down and yada, 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 right? But this is not what gospel hospitality is at all. Gospel hospitality is going after people who are in need, finding those people, and inviting them into our lives. Inviting them into the very rhythms of our life, our family, and our homes in order to help meet that need. It's a practical, proactive way to meet people where? At the point of their deepest need. The beginning of verse 13 says contribute. That word contribute. It's important. It comes from the, the, the Greek word koinoneo. Koinonia is another word, and that means like the fellowship. The koinonia of the saints, the fellowship of the saints. This is a derivative of that. Koinoneo means participation in something. A participation that can reach such a degree. This comes from uh, several of the concordances, by the way, that define koinoneo. It's a participation that can reach such a degree that one claims a part in it for oneself to share one's possessions with the implication of some kind of joint participation and mutual interest. 
In other words, it is going out, right? We find people through whatever means it happens. Sometimes it happens through providential means that we would never expect. Other times it happens through the normal rhythms of life at work, in our neighborhood. But we're looking for those who have need in their life, particularly spiritual need in their life. And it means that we, we, we get to know them, we, we learn what those needs are, and this is indicating you come alongside of them to such an extent that their needs, their burdens, are felt by you at an extremely deep level. Their needs almost become your needs to the point that you want to meet that need for the glory of God in their life. Contribute like this. Gospel hospitality, it's a, it's a practical, it's practical. You're meeting needs that someone has. Those needs can be physical, they can be spiritual, they can be emotional, but listen, oftentimes the path to meeting someone's spiritual needs starts by meeting their social needs, Amen. their physical needs, their emotional needs. And as we invest in someone at that level, ministering to them, the healing grace of the gospel, the spiritual needs inevitably bubble up for us to get involved in. So gospel hospitality, it's a practical, proactive way to meet people at their point of deepest need. Third application. Gospel hospitality starts within the family of God, but it also includes the seeker or the stranger. It starts with the family of God, but it includes those outside the family of God. You know, in verse 10, Paul's already alluded to this when he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Again, this is a concept like agape love that was outside the known world at that time. In in the Mediterranean world, in the ancient world, your family was family, right? And everybody else was not. The idea of loving a neighbor to having such a close relationship with someone else that it was as if they are family. No, this, this is a, a foreign concept. That's why the church was so intriguing to non-believers because here's a group of people who loved one another with this type of deep brotherly affection. They were actually closer to one another than they were their own family members in many cases because their family had kicked them out for converting and believing in Jesus Christ. So this was a strange concept in a world where only human family could be family. So he says, love one another, and and that one another means people within the church. Love one another with brotherly affection. In verse 13, contribute to the needs of who? The saints. The saints. At its most basic understanding of the idea of gospel hospitality, it is actively getting involved, looking for the needs of people who belong to Jesus Christ. It starts at home. How do all men know that we are Jesus' disciples, he says? By how you what? Love one another. So gospel hospitality starts at home. And, and this was practical in this day and age because historically, it was dangerous to travel throughout that world. You know, I, I, as I was doing this sermon, preparing it, I had brought back to my memory something that happened mm, 19 years ago, 
I think it was. I was on a business trip. I was in Tampa. I had had a great meal, and I had come back to the hotel and was grabbing my laptop and everything out of the, out of the car. And like in slow motion, I saw a car inching my way, right? And before I knew it, he accelerated, and your time drag. Have you ever had that happen where just time just drags out, you know? And he's like, whoa, I'm about to be mugged, right? And that's what happened. This guy jumps out of a car. There's two of them in the car. And this young man jumps out of the car and he puts a revolver right up against my forehead, right? And he demands that, you know, my stuff and, and the other driver, he was hopped up or something because after a while he started, you know, cursing and telling him to blow my brains out and all this. And, and I can, to this day, can see that guy, that kid's knuckles turning white as that trigger was right in front of my eyes, you know? Thought I was about to, I thought it was about to go home, right? That it was over with. And I remember thinking, thank you, Lord, that I took out life insurance for Catherine. I remember thinking that, right? Uh, and at, at just the very moment in time, along comes a car that backs up two spaces over, and a guy's on his cell phone, and he's talking, and he's not realizing that I got a gun to my head. You know, talking about being a distracted driver, you know? But I got to tell you, by the way, I obviously lived. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. The, uh, I, that, I have stayed in hundreds of hotels, through my business world, the career, and through traveling. A lot like you guys, uh, I was a road warrior for many, many years. That was the only time I ever experienced a lack of safety, where I felt unsafe. Right? Now, I've taken Catherine to some places where she felt it was pretty unsafe because it was, un it was germy, right? And she, no, we're not staying here, right? Wives, you ever done that to your husband? That's happened to us sometimes. But never have we felt physically in danger. But see, in the ancient world, that wasn't the case because the hotels, the inns in the ancient world, they were dangerous places to stay especially if you were an out-of-town guest. And so what the Christians began to do is they began to walk through their town, and especially as it was getting towards you know, sundown, and they would look for strangers, and they would go and they would engage them in conversation, and they would invite them to come and stay in their homes and sleep the night and then share a meal with them so that it would be safe for them. Now, you can imagine what this ha did in a smaller town or, or a neighborhood where everybody knows everybody. Strangers are immediately known. And here's this one family, and they keep bringing strangers to their homes on a regular basis. What do you think that did in the minds of everyone else who was around them who were not Christians? It generates what? Questions. Why, why are you bringing this? What are you doing? What are you doing this for? I don't understand. You see, gospel hospitality is an extremely practical way of, of spreading the gospel, of opening up opportunities to have redemptive conversations, and it provides opportunities to bring the lost into what it means to be a Christian. I, I, I appreciate the fact that in, in the pastorate here, I have seen some wonderful examples of gospel hospitality in our church where we take care of the family of God. And we've seen it recently through fam with families who were experiencing terminal illnesses. I think of several years back of a, of a small group who knew that one of their members had a great need with one of their children. They're no longer in our church. They've moved out of the area, but they had this great need. 
and the family did not have the money for it, and members of their small group came to us and said, would you allow us to contribute in a way, and, and, and would the Mercy Fund or whoever be able to help? And we, we worked things out. There were some difficulties there legally, but we were able to do some things with a designated fund. And, to, and this family, all these people, and this family never knew, this family never knew that their small group members were meeting that financial need. But that's what was happening. Um, I've seen people in our church give up cars. You had an extra car, and you see somebody else in the church whose car had broken down. It was, went beyond its last leg. And I've seen you give your car, your spare car, or another vehicle to somebody who's in need. I've seen you open up your homes to people who are in need. I mean, Ben told us a story just the other day of Alana meeting a lady on the street, and she's moving to an apartment. She has absolutely nothing for her and her family. And as a church, you responded, and you just decked out this apartment. I appreciate the way you're embracing, maybe not even realizing, that you're embracing the idea of gospel hospitality. But it's more than physical, folks. It's emotional needs. It's spiritual needs. It, it requires us to get out of our comfort zone, to engage with one another, to live authentically with one another, and to, when we see that there's a need, be willing to reprioritize our schedule, our lives, to open up our lives to somebody who has need. And sometimes that means bringing them into the home. Sometimes it may mean, that, hey, let's go meet at the restaurant. We need to talk. Let's have meal together. Let me buy you lunch. But it's opening up our lives and our homes. This is so important. The scriptures reiterate it. In Galatians 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. See, gospel hospitality starts within the family of God, but as Galatians 6 points out, and there's certainly no restriction in Romans chapter 12, it does include those who are, are seekers and strangers. Now, understanding this, that it does include these folks, helps us to better understand what it means to be an ambassador of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, at a great judgment where he's talking to people and he's welcoming them into his eternal home, he says this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So, so the very proof that they belonged to Christ in the first place and the way they served him was how they entered into the lives of people who were in need, in this case, hungry, thirsty, homeless, whatever, the, and they entered into those lives and they met those needs. And Jesus says, when you do this to someone, you are doing it as if you're doing it to me. In Hebrews 13, we have a great passage, uh, one of those bizarre little snippets that inform us about that unseen spiritual world. He says, let brotherly love continue. Isn't it interesting that the writer of Hebrews does very much like Paul, and he prefaces everything with that condition of love. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Isn't that interesting? The author says here, listen, we are to be hospitable, and just so you know, Sometimes who you are entertaining and bringing into your home and, doing, and giving them uh, biblical hospitality and serving and meeting those needs, they're actually God's divine messengers. How cool is that? 
I married one. Yeah. Couldn't resist that. You know, get a few cheap brownie points, Mike Palja. Got to take it where you can get it, right? Hey, what does he say in verse 14? He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Uh, this, is, this, this is why it's hard work, guys. Biblical hospitality means we are just going way outside of our comfort zone at times. It's involving people who we may not normally hang around with. But this is what it looks like for us to do it. It means getting involved in our little leagues, getting involved in clubs in our community, coming to know those individuals, talking to them. Oh, this is hard for some of us. It is, isn't it? Some of us talking to others is no big deal. But I'm going to tell you something. Some of the best people who show gospel hospitality are those who by personality are not the most gregarious or outgoing. You know why? Because those of us who are gregarious and outgoing, we're so shallow, we don't know how to listen to people. It's true. And those of you who are not, you have depth, and, and, and we need the grace of God to help us learn to listen better. You need the grace of God to, to make that first approach to someone. But you have the listening skills, you have the personality to actually be a phenomenal minister of gospel hospitality. We just have to pray and ask God to give us the grace to get over that fear. Hey, one final application. Let me leave it with this. Gospel hospitality is an effective way to disciple our children. I just want to give this by way of a note from a practical application of why we should be involved in gospel hospitality. I can't think of a more effective way to disciple our children. Church, when it comes to following Jesus, um, following Jesus is caught more than it is taught. Do you understand that? Following Jesus is caught more than it is taught. And so when we practice gospel hospitality, and we open up our homes on a regular basis to people inside of our church, outside of our church, we open up our lives and we bring our children into it with us. This is important. That, that preaches more sermons than any type of a, of a study lesson they can get at Voyagers. Okay? Because following Christ is caught more than it's taught. Listen, I, I, I have the, the benefit now. You notice I haven't preached about parenting very much as your pastor. I've done it a couple of times, but you know why I didn't? Why I haven't? Because I felt like, you know, I needed to wait until my children got to adulthood. I don't want to be up here spouting, you know, how to be a better parent, this and that, and then my kids turn out to be absolute hellions, okay? <laughs> well, at least one of them is turning out okay. Uh, no, they're both, they're both wonderful boys. I was just setting them up against each other. And, and I can't give you... <laughs> now you see why I haven't taught on parenting. <laughs> um, listen, I've made tons of mistakes as a parent. Uh, the fact that they have turned out uh, and are turning out the way they are is a credit to the grace of God. It's also a credit to why we need the family of God, because some of you were such incredible instruments in the lives of my boys. And I'm so forever grateful for that. Um, the way you were voices of the gospel in the lives of my boys. 
But looking back at it, there is one thing that I don't regret at all. And truly, I think it's one of the things that has maybe been most effective in God stirring up the hearts of my boys. And that is, I never hid them from ministry. I involved them with ministry. I brought them with me to the hospital or they were there when we would have a family or a couple at our dinner table and they were there for at least part of the meal and they may get sent out at some point later they were there in our home when we hosted covenant groups and we did biblical community together and we served one another together and we supported one another together as a group we practiced gospel hospitality at its most basic understanding within the church together living authentically and so while I made tons of mistakes, at times lost my temper, at times probably should have applied the Board of Education more often to the seat of learning, and all those other things where I might have made mistakes, the one thing I firmly believe that God has honored is that I involve them in biblical hospitality, serving the needs of other people. Because they got to see firsthand what it means for the body of Christ to do life together. And that made such, a, I think, a deep impression upon them. It has charted aspects of their life. And so church, parents, if, if you want to see God bless your parenting, involve your family, open up your family to the people in our church, the people in our community, lost and saved alike who are in need Bring them into that orbit and see how God produces fruit from you making your life and your home available for his use. He'll honor it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. We thank you, for, Lord. I, I, I talked about our experience, but as I was looking across the audience, I saw others who are such better practitioners of gospel hospitality than I. And Lord, I've seen how you have honored their families and their homes because they're living on mission. They're, you, they're realizing that they can bring the gospel and the restoring power of the gospel to people's lives through their home. Lord, this is inconvenient. Our pride gets in the way. My house doesn't look good. I can't do this. I don't have, and we can throw up a ton of excuses, but Father, that's what they are. They're excuses. Give us the grace that we need to open our lives and our homes to those who are in need so that we may see you work through us as your ambassadors and bring them to a point of reconciliation with you through Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Wow.